Hello again, everybody. Today we will explore an array of opinions on economics and liberty. Populism is under attack, but what is the economic system cementing in place and what are its characteristics? Today, four voices will offer opinions relevant to this conversation from backgrounds and walks of life very different from one another. A discussion on their thoughts and a theory is proposed from it. Hello again, everybody. This is uh, Jason Powers. So today we're going to discuss um, some populism uh, thoughts and also uh, economic systems in particular. Um, I'm using the voices of uh, four different people in regards to this. Um, it's been difficult putting this together because I, I I started with an original episode and I, I thought I could record it in stereo um, using a different microphone and the resulting um wasn't that great so i'm redoing this so today we're going to discuss this again so the four people i'm going to go ahead and announce them right at the get-go so the first off will be uh sticks hex and hammer who is a a commentator on youtube he's very popular um he well he's moving off youtube as as are many people which is where uh we're heading with this uh particular uh system that's being put in place in front of us um he's a libertarian in in general i would say he's non-religious and then second up will be uh naomi wolf who is a a very um well-known public figure uh she's a liberal feminist uh she's a road scholar she once was a clinton advisor so take take that for what you will uh, however, uh, she she also has been uh, very vocal recently about the the situation that's being unfolding. Um, she may be late. She may have been late to the party, but uh, at least she's at the party now. Uh, third, thirdly, will be a, a lady named Catherine Austin Fitz, who was actually uh, in the Bush administration sh- for a short period of time. Uh, Bush one, that is. 
uh, back in the early 1990s, or probably actually she, I think she started in 1989. She worked in the office of HUD, and she would be considered, uh, I mean, from what I can gather, she uh, she's a... Uh, on uh, she's a Christian and she's obviously I, I would say more of a right-leaning person I'm not going to delve any further than that and then lastly is um, Jordan Peterson who of course we know from uh, being a professor I think he was at the University of Toronto he's been uh, Harvard educated he's a classical liberal and he's going to discuss uh, uh, the Communist Manifesto he just released a video. This was from uh, the video he did was from uh, early 2019. But uh, I think it's um, interesting to listen to his his feelings on on that particular uh, tract and the people that were uh, obviously Marx and Engels. So without further ado, I'm going to start with uh, sticks and we'll uh, go from there. All right, everyone, right now there is a mass propaganda campaign by the legacy media to try to cast off populism as anti-capitalistic. The idea is that they're worried because more and more Republicans are becoming populists. Uh, they're seeing through the lies of big tech, censorship, uh, the bullshit of the past, like basically the post-Reagan paradigm where the Republicans went from being literally for a hundred years the party of the working man, the party of the United States in, in the broad sense, having a society that kind of worked. The Democrats were the sleazeball corporatists and carpetbaggers by and large. What ended up happening is the Republicans got corrupted roughly at the end of the 1980s. You have a boom time, corporations come in, they start loosening the purse strings, and they start buying off elements of the GOP, and the rest is history. The backlash to this has been that because for the last 40 years we have had no fundamental party that represented American interests, we had no populism, we had neolibs and neocons, people have woken up and they want populism. With elements as well, I would say, of libertarianism, and then you have the far left, certainly larger than it was maybe 20, 30 years ago, rising up on the other flank. And this is terrifying these people, which is why Project Veritas gets kicked off Twitter. It's why Infowars gets banned on YouTube. It's why people like me are algorithmically demoted cross-platform on mainline tech. It's why people lose Facebook pages and purge after purge every single day. The billionaires are afraid of you. They are afraid of you waking up to the fact that nobody in the government currently is really representing you and populism is the way to go if you want actual average people to be the ones that are prioritized in the U.S. economy. What Bloomberg, which is hysterical... Remember Mike Bloomberg, the one that spent $100 million trying to flip Florida and failed? Yeah, that, that massive multi-billion dollar Bloomberg, the one that could actually buy and sell Trump like 10 times over? He, he really cares about the average working class person, let me tell you. Uh, so link in the description, archived of course, uh, to a story there where they're trying to cast off populism as anti-capitalistic. Crony capitalism is what's anti-capitalistic. That's why I don't use the term. Just say corporatism. It's fa light fascism, basically, at least economic fascism. Our government and these big corporations are essentially fused together at the moment. Increasingly so. Big tech censorship, differential tax codes, the use of federal bureaus to attack people, to attack upstarts and activists. We've seen this over and over again. It starts at the end of, of Reagan's second term, or beginning, rather, uh, and then marches on through and gets worse and worse and worse. 
Essentially, it's billionaires running your government. What happens currently is that the billionaire doesn't have to pay the same tax rate as the small business or the entrepreneur because they've got the lawyers and the accountants and the congressional ears leaning into them to make sure that they don't have to. That is not capitalism. It's closer to socialism. It is essentially a corporate welfare state. It is a leftist, highly centralized, hierarchical, croniest system. It has nothing in common with the idea that if you work, you should be able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. That if you innovate, you should be able to take that innovation and capitalize upon it. Instead, we've got a situation where in some uh, industries, there can't be any outside innovation. The government has explicitly forbidden it. If uh, uh, If you're an inventor, you're working in your basement, and you develop some sort of pharmaceutical product, you, you've developed a cure for AIDS, can you market it? No. You can't, you're not going to get a peer-reviewed study through, through any network that would put it before the FDA. You're not going to get approved by the FDA. They're going to force you to sell the idea, the patent, to a big pharma company. You'll make a lot of money, but you don't have the ability to really break the, You don't have the ability to become the next Pfizer. You can sell your idea to Pfizer, but you, you can't be GlaxoKleinSmith or whatever acronym they are these days, but you can sell it to them. Well, you'll do plenty well. You'll be rich, but you're not going to be a billionaire. It's not going to happen. You cure for cancer. Uh, they'll buy it, and then they'll shelve it so they can continue uh, giving people a treatment of other sorts that will bring a continued income. That's the way the system works. It's not capitalism. Capitalism is the FDA is not in your way. If you can show to people compellingly that your product actually works and conforms to the basic rigorous standards of basic testing, you should be able to put it out there and develop it yourself and force those companies to compete to try to buy it, and maybe you'll sell, maybe you won't. Instead, we've got a Gilded Era sort of thing where if you try to do that, you'll get your door busted down. Thugs will come in the middle of the night and rage you. And they'll take all of your shit and throw you in jail, and there won't be any help for you. That's not capitalism. That's highly top-down, highly centralized, far-left state control in coordination with the same corporate entities that fund them. Where do you think all their money comes from? Most of these people in Congress, their money does not come from the salary that you, the taxpayer, pay them. It comes from book deals where they write a book. It could be the most boring fucking-ass book ever, but somehow they sold a million copies. Oh, who bought the copies? A Chinese slush fund. A U.S. corporation winked and nodded to them, put money into a Chinese slush fund, and they were all shipped to China, where they were immediately put in a landfill, let me tell you. But you made a huge amount of money. You got your millions of dollars. Speaking fees. Oh, well, yeah. How is it Nancy Pelosi's, what, fucking $100 million or something? She's a 1% of a 1%er now. How'd she get the money? It wasn't from a salary. Yeah, she makes, you know, high six figures, or, or maybe seven, in Californian, uh, but she doesn't make that much money. Certainly not. How'd she get it? Speaking fees. $50,000 a plate gala. It's basically a bribe. It's a buy-off. It's how the corporatists bought your government. That is not capitalism. Populism is capitalism. The concept that that government should be restrained from taking that money, the corporations can make as much money as they want, but should not be using the machinations of government to prevent all competition. Competition is capitalism. It's literally capitalism. It's the lifeblood of that system of, gov- of, of economic governance. It's the ability of me, a self-employed individual, to have equal latitude with any other person in the same field, try to outcompete them, work hard, maybe expand, maybe just get by. It's according to my ability and not according to my needs. It's according to your ability to drive forth the engine of progress and to produce something that other people consider of of tangible value. That's capitalism. 
a true free market and real free trade. Capitalistic trade is not two governments have agreed that the corporations in one another's countries can go in and exploit everyone. That's not capitalism. That's global cronyism. It's, It's closer to communism. It's not capitalistic in any way, shape, or form. The only people that are involved in that so-called free market are people that have bought the government off. That centralized system has to have high amounts of power in order to administer such a, such a grift. That's not capitalist. That's not a free market. It's certainly not free trade. You try engaging in the trade lines. See what happens. Try starting a business. Have you ever heard of a book called Everything I Want to Do is Illegal? And it's about a couple, they tried to start like a home farm and stuff, and the amount of bureaucracy, legalese, red tape, lawsuits, harassment that you have to go through to have a meaningful business, even like a side hustle. Fucking there have been kids who have been ticketed by their cities for having a lemonade stand because they didn't have a a license to sell food. This is not a joke. That is not capitalism. We had plenty of capitalism until relatively recently. It started disappearing in the Gilded Era. Really, that's when the beginning of the end of U.S. capitalism was in the late 1800s. The period of greatest expanse and prosperity and innovation predates the government's involvement in most of the bureaus that it administers. And after that, it slowly eked away more and more of it because it was getting bought up more and more by corporations that, again, don't exist in a capitalistic framework. They hold meetings together to coordinate their actions now. They aren't even competing with each other. They have formed a global trust. And it's not U.S. firms. It's not even U.S. economy. It's just a globalist uh, economy. It's multinationals. And that's the whole fucking problem. Populism, preferably around the entire world, and uprisings of boycotts against these companies is the only way that things are going to go forth and actually get better for the average person. Yeah, people should demand more of a slice of a pie, but not in the form of the state giving them welfare or UBI or something, in the sense of if you're working, if you're doing something meaningful, you should be capable of making a living wage. You should be left alone. If you have a good idea, you shouldn't have to sell it out to a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation that'll probably just misuse it anyway. You should be able to patent it, market it yourself. That's capitalism. That's the American way. That's America first. That's about all. Peace out. So there you go. From uh, that's from Sticks, Hacks, and Hammer. He gives a pretty good uh, summary of uh, various uh, forces that are coming together against us, and how our last forty years we've been, um, in many cases, suckered by uh, the neocons and the neolibs as they've uh, dis- they've uh, aligned in certain ways to uh, pit us against each other, divide and conquer that kind of thing. So next up is going. I mean, I could go into what my theory is, but I'm going to first uh, go ahead and, and go to Naomi Wolf, and uh, she was on the Eric Matakis show. I'm going to let her talk for um, uh, a few uh, a few minutes. There's a snippet from it early on, and I think she, like I said, she is uh, would be far removed from where I am politically, but. Uh, I think at least she's uh, aware of what's going on. So I'll let her let her speak for herself. I mean, I mean my, my first my first instinct, and thank you, Eric. It's always such a joy to speak with you. Um, and this is so important, this issue more important than ever. My first instinct is to step back and, and remember that we're in the United States of America, where you're supposed to be able to ask any question, challenge any truism, 
you know, ask any expert for more information to justify his or her position and nothing is supposed to be untouchable intellectually. Um, so it's to me as a reporter and no doubt to you as a nonfiction writer, it certainly raises a red flag that there's this like um, kind of mantra of sanctity being woven around the mere act of vaccination. I mean, a vaccine is just a process a process. You can put anything in a vaccine. And um, the people who create them are just human beings and companies and, you know, nobody's infallible. So I am not anti-vaxxer, but I'm certainly anti, you know, going back to the Middle Ages and leaving the Enlightenment behind and having a, a secular priesthood that says what we are or are not allowed to question. So well, now go. Yeah. No, that, 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 that's, that's a great way of framing it. Keep going. Thank you. Well, I was just going to say now, going back to the first thing you said about demonizing evangelicals, I actually tweeted about this this morning. The New York Times is really engaging in a very, very hideous and quite systematic process of constructing anyone who critiques what is clearly a kind of biofascist rollout of a new biosecurity state, um, you know, involving constant you know, upgrades to vaccinations, constant monitoring, vaccine passports, uh, 360 degree surveillance via vaccine passports, um, you know, monitoring and deplatforming of social media, no doubt shortly linked. And I've been talking about the technology of this as a tech company CEO linked to vaccine passports. It's a it's a China style suppression of our liberties on a grand scale. And one way the New York Times is colluding in this, and I'm really going to say colluding because it's like World War II at this point, you know, some people are, you know, kind of going along with the occupying evil forces. And the New York Times got millions of dollars in Gates money. And I think this affects their coverage. But they're starting systematically, they've been doing it for a while to create this kind of caricature of white, you know, fundamentalists, mostly male, but, you know, women are included in there, who are, you know, too stupid to just accept Dr. Fauci and have biker rallies and, you know, are anti-science because they don't necessarily think Pfizer has all the answers or they're asking questions. And it's this kind of, you know, layering and layering of otherizing. It's really offensive. I think it's racist um, and they shouldn't do it. And, and, and what it does is when you're someone like me with all the right credentials, Rhodes Scholar, Democratic advisor, um, Jewish, you know, like urban, New York City, San Francisco, um, you know, cosmopolitan. I'm, I'm in the right tribe, um, but just to question Biden or China's influence on the United States or vaccine fascism otherizes me into the camp of yokels that are being constructed by the New York Times and like declasses me, deplatforms me, risks censoring me, people won't, you know, invite me to their conferences anymore. That's that's how the National Socialists consolidated power in 1933. It's ugly and it's obvious that this is happening. So I'm that's so glad to hear you say everything you just said. You're tracking precisely with what I've been thinking. I mean it staggers me you know, I wrote a, a a book about the man who ended the slave trade. Uh, I wrote a book about Bonhoeffer, who, because of his Christian faith, stood up against the persecution of the Jews. Nothing matters what you've done in the past or who you are if you, you know, trip over uh, any of these uh, shibboleths, to mix metaphors, 
you're instantly to use the ugly term otherized, but that's exactly what it is. But the fact that the New York Times would do this and would single out, uh, as we've been saying, like white evangelicals, in other words, the idea that what they're doing as they demonize groups of people is they're saying, these are stupid people who are anti-science, which is a meaningless statement, frankly. I think atheists are anti-science. And basically, they're not being careful, they're not being nuanced, and they're doing exactly what you said. They're enabling uh, uh, the cancel culture to move forward uh, in the way that it did in Germany in the 30s, where if you question it, you have to ask, do I want to question it? Do I want to do I want to get in trouble? So I'll just go along with it. I'll just get the vaccine, even though I really wasn't going to. I'll get it because I want to be able to go to a baseball game and there's going to be vaccine passports. This is what is happening. Uh, so as you can uh, hear there, that's uh, they mentioned Bonhoeffer, which I did an episode a couple couple weeks ago on him uh, in particular and what his thoughts and, and uh, certain ideas that it came about. So they talk about otherizing, which is, you know, in this cancel culture that has become prevalent in the last, in particular, the last four or five years. Uh, it's escalated gradually over that time. And it's being driven by media, as they mentioned, the New York Times, which has given up all um, ability to rationally argue um, that it's it's an actual publication that's uh, nuanced and, and actually understands what positions it's supposed to take. It's one thing to be a left outlet or a right outlet or what have you. But when you start demonizing your other side, then that becomes a dangerous situation, which is what they're what they're illuminating in this conversation is that uh, we have a great many people that are being seen as anti-science, anti-everything, just because they're hesitant about something as as uh, actually as important as a vaccine. And the reason why they're hesitant is because they know that the, the safety trials and the protocols and lots of other things have been um, kind of misrepresented to them. And there's more to it than that because uh, it seems quite interesting that, you know, this is this is an mRNA vaccine and, and it's more than uh, more than understood that uh, there might be some uh, downsides that downside risk that they're not promoting. Obviously, they're not telling you about. And it's also tied to a greater, a grander scheme and objective that's been laid out by the World Economic Forum, by Bill, Bill Melinda Gates Foundation, who is a strategic partner with the World Economic Forum, if you go to their website, and by China itself, who, oh, by the way, they're the origin, they're the origin story for this entire thing. And we also know that Dr. Fauci and others have been, uh, were actively involved in the Wuhan lab and the P4 lab where uh, they were doing gain-of-function research. And there's uh, substantial evidence and certainly enough evidence to be pursued that this is not a your ordinary virus and that this virus was uh, uh, manipulated and then released. And then you know, whether it released by accident or released on purpose, uh, that should give you a, a large degree of a concern because it shows the malevolence that's behind many of the actions that have been taken. And because they've turned this uh, quote-unquote manufactured crisis into an opportunity to to uh, destroy capitalism, 
which is what Sticks was eliminating. And this goes to what I'm uh, a brief, I'm going to give a brief, try to give this in two minutes. So the way I look at this is that there's, there's, uh, there's aspects on both sides. So we know about globalism. We know it's a hierarchical structure. It's highly centralized. It's being run by elitist billionaires' decisions. There's lots of corporate collusion. Uh, the trade policies between two countries are are being manipulated by a corporate corporate lobbyist and corporate uh, consolidation that has uh, gone on, particularly in uh, 2020, where uh, essential and non-essential were were aspects of uh, divvying up people, divide and conquer. So it's exploitative of people. Globalism is it exploits their resources, exploits capital markets and capital uh, flows of uh, capital through through the system. So you can cause a great deal of shift in in how people respond and react based upon the capital and where you place it. There's government regulations, basically barriers to entry for anybody who who has a good idea, which was something that sticks illuminated. And then you have the mainstream uh, media propaganda, which would be tying into what Naomi Wolf was talking about with the other rising, in particular with Big Pharma. So we know Big Pharma got a great deal of uh, cash flow that was uh, presented to them in order to cr- create these vaccines in, a, in a double time, double speed. It was almost like they were set up to initially to uh, uh, to foster this. In other words, they needed a boost. And uh, they gave uh, governments all over the world were doing this and they were all on the same page and they were always in this. Uh, they were t- speaking from the same playbook, the Mockingbird Media you can call it the CIA. You can call it whatever you want to call it. Uh, they were all in tune. And then they started censoring people who didn't have the same point of view as them on uh, YouTube and, and uh, Twitter and Facebook. They were all trying to stop this. And they have a playbook out there in particular, like Facebook. There's an actual playbook written against people who are anti, what they call anti-vax. The thing is, is it's all about not asking questions. If you're an, if you, if you try to question something, and oh by the way, if you have a, a high level science background, which many people did, like the doctors did, and they were avoiding th- uh, thera- uh, therapeutics and putting all their money on these vaccines, well, guess what? Who who did that benefit? It benefits big pharma. Because there's no money to be made in hydroxychloroquine. There's no money to be made in vitamin D. There's no money to be made in vitamin C or zinc or any minerals that are cheaply made. There's no money for pharma to, to get involved in any of that stuff. So they don't do it, which is reprehensible. Because those things would actually be beneficial. Most people's health is, is being affected by things that they're not doing right to begin with, the front end. It's like front end maintenance. You know, you are what you eat. You know, you've heard that phrase before. Well, you you technically are. You know, we know there's a gut there's a gut bio, uh I'm getting off on a tangent here, but we know that there's there's an essential part of your human body that's based upon what you take into it. So the globalists don't like this, and they use uh, technocracy, which is the expansion of the a surveillance state. Uh, you can call it the Patriot Act upgrade. Uh, to now it's an internet. And now it's going to be a uh, vaccine passport, this COVID passport, as they call it. They've been rolling this out over, all over the all over the world in Britain, in Ireland. They're rolling it out in the UK, or uh, not the UK, but Europe, uh, European Union. Um, 
They don't hear about it in China because what they're doing is they're modeling China's social credit system. That's what they're they have a they have a new thing they they call it the ESG. Uh, it's tied to environmental, uh, social. I think some kind of social uh, credit system or social justice, and then governance. So this is being tied. This is being all intertwined together, and this is all being driven by the UN, the World Economic Forum, and China, and in, and essentially even DC. They're kind of all on board with this stuff, and they've they've been couching it in you know linguistic terms. You know, build back better. You know, we've all heard of the Great Reset, or we should have. And a lot of people don't believe in this because they're they're actually they're just being being naive or they're purposely avoiding it because they say, well, what what control do I have over it? Well, you have a lot of control. You don't you don't go along to play along. They they think going along with the system is the way to go. They think this is okay. Uh, to follow orders, to follow what their leader... They, they say, oh, my leadership wouldn't lead us astray. They're good people. Uh, I don't know why anybody would ever think that. I, I really don't. Bad people have existed throughout history. The 1930s were indicative of that fact. Uh, a guy like uh, Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler, or later Mao Zedong, who was around in the 1930s, obviously. Uh, he was. <laughs> they were fighting a communist revolution there. And they took advantage of the idea that uh, uh, when World War II took uh, took hold, uh, there was uh, uh, China was really they were out of the picture. They didn't really do anything. Uh, they, matter of fact, they they had their own internal struggles. That's the reason why you have Taiwan, because obviously Shanghai Shek uh, took flight to Taiwan after uh, the communists. Uh, basically kicked them off the uh, kicked them off the continent because uh, our uh, our State Department didn't uh, do, uh, they they did such a poor job of identifying who was the real threat. But that's neither here nor there, that's another story. But nevertheless, these are all totalitarian dictators. And the only difference between, I guess, honestly, between Stalin and Hitler was uh, Stalin was a global communist uh, proponent and Hitler was... Uh, using uh, the fascistic, nationalistic, socialistic uh, uh, viewpoint. So this is the reason why nationalism gets a bad gets a bad bad rap. It gets a it gets a bad rap due to that fact. Even though national interest is nothing nothing unusual, the Western uh, Western uh, states have been in existence for the last six hundred or so years, um, coming out of the coming out of the Middle Ages or the late Middle Ages. When you had uh, the formation of of, uh, of, of uh, nations, in particular uh, Spain, uh, Italy, uh, the UK, or at that time it would have been just uh, uh, Great Britain. <clears throat> I'm not going to get into the, the involvement there, but the British Empire um, was part and parcel. But all those were nation states, France. Germany came later. Germany was much, much later. Matter of fact, Germany was, I think, the last one in particular. And there's been, you know, but this idea that there was some kind of national interest uh, being, and that national interest is bad is 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 a is poorly constructed because uh, we still have nations to this day. But globalism doesn't like that. They 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 don't want to. They don't want borders. They don't want local control either. So on the other side of this, and I've got off on a tangent here, you have populism, localism, and individualism. 
and populism is tied to the Bill of Rights and the primacy of it, at least in the United States. The idea that we have, you know, a Bill of Rights, individual rights, and they should not be infringed. And, and that's not just in the Second Amendment, that's in all amendments as far as I'm concerned. But we've had such a legal labyrinth being that's been overlaid over our rights based upon poor construction of Supreme Court decisions and local laws and state laws and more importantly federal jurisdiction has superseded that it's destroyed much of the idea that that we have uh, uh, rights rights to free speech rights to lack uh, you think about invasion of privacy a vaccine is an invasion of privacy you have people that are wanting a covid passport they don't even realize that you know that is an invasion of your privacy no one should know what your uh, health status is Remember HIPAA? I I seem to remember HIPAA was a big deal a few years ago, or not even a few years ago. It's still supposed to be in existence, but they're tearing down these structures because uh, there's a there's a grander scheme afoot, which we're going to get into with Catherine Austin Fitz. But uh, the next two things are localism. Localism is about decentralization of power. It's about being middle class driven, which means uh, entrepreneurship and. And businesses, Main Street instead of Wall Street, co-ops and individuals, um, if people want to collectivize together in their local community to create beneficial resources and, and, and improve it, that's better. It eliminates the corporate bureaucracy. Uh, it's streamlining. There's less management. One of the biggest problems with the United States of America is the, the 4 million federal uh, workers you can call them middle managers, for lack of a better term. They're the technocrats, and many of the people in there do nothing. They don't do anything but push paper, and they, they, they interpret regulations, and they interpret it so that they can maintain their job. So you need limited government. Right now, I would say, at minimum, 25 to 50% cuts in government, government programs, government spending, and more importantly, government workers. Uh, they need to get. They need a. They're they're freeloading off the the entire tax pay, uh, taxpayer. You know, it's bad enough that we have any taxes at all. Up until like 1880 or 1890, um, we used to. Uh, the United States was off trade and tariffs. There's a reason why tariffs probably existed, and why everybody said, "Well, you know that, you know, it, it interferes with uh, trade policy." Well. There's a there's there's probably some arguments that can be made for having a less uh, less rob having having certain amount of protections for your own uh, workers in your own country, but it would be great if we would spend more time on local trading and monopoly. But the problem is, is the government can't take any money from you if everybody is working on a local benefit, and the only only money that the government would receive would be on, for example, uh, military support. But that would be handled at a state level. If we eliminated all the bureaucracy, then you would have a very we would have a, a weak weaker collection of, of uh, states. In other words, states' rights would matter. Local local rights would matter, and the the federal government would be streamlined down to where the only the only existence of of statism, I guess you would say, would be just. The minimal constructions of what the Bill of Rights and the, the U.S. Constitution had laid out at at the outset. All these agencies over the years have just convoluted, 
and they work against each other and they're always fighting. They're basically fighting for your money and they do that all the time. <laughs> so getting rid of uh, a lot of that control would be important in terms of regulation and then having uh, a minimal mass media. Our media structure is an albatross on our society because the media is being run by corporations and the corporations are using that that media outlet as a tool to manipulate and con you. Uh, this goes back to like Edward Bernays and it's it's been upgraded obviously with the technology that's available but people are easily easily suckered into believing whatever the media tells them to do. Um, you you'd be surprised how much we we are uh, influenced by it even even in in the minuscule ways. We not we may not even be aware of it in 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 many cases, but uh, it is influencing us. <laughs> so uh, next we're going to go to Catherine Austin Fitz. Um, she uh, illuminates uh, the the long game, uh, what's going on, and we'll let her discuss it, and then we'll end up with uh, Jordan Peterson. So Catherine Austin Fitz, I'm the publisher of the Solari Report and managing director of Solari Investment Advisory Services. And um, what do you think is happening economically as a result of all this? So uh, what is happening, I just published a huge study called The State of Our Sur- uh, Currencies. And what I describe is the fact that for many decades, the dollar has been the reserve currency. And uh, the system is what I would describe as long in the tooth. And the central bankers are trying to bring in a new system but it's not ready to go yet. And what we're, what we're in a period of great change and uncertainty where the central bankers are trying to keep the dollar system going and accelerate. So they're trying to lengthen the dollar system and then they're trying to accelerate bringing in the new system. And they have to bring in the new system without anybody quite realizing exactly what it is. So we've had a global reserve currency system, the dollar, and it needs to evolve and change, and it's long in the tooth. There's lots of unhappiness with the system, and the central bankers are trying to bring a new system. And to do it, they're trying to extend the old and accelerate the new, and it makes it a very chaotic thing, since much of the new is being tested and tried and prototyped, and it involves many different industries. So... Uh, I describe the new system as the end of currencies. So it's we're not bringing in a new currency. We're essentially bringing in a new transaction system that will be all digital and essentially end currencies as we know them. So what they're trying to do is involves essentially all the money on the planet. So it's big, it's complicated, it's messy. Um, and the challenge they have is how do you market a system that if people understood it, nobody would want. And of course... <laughs> The way you do that is with a healthcare crisis. And why is a healthcare crisis good for that? Because generally, if if a few people want to control the many, the question is how can you, you know, how can you herd all the sheep into the slaughterhouse without them realizing and resisting? So, uh, the perfect thing is invisible enemies. So we had the war on terrorism. <laughs> You know, with invisible terrorists, and then then now a virus is perfect because it's invisible. You can't prove that it doesn't exist because it's visible, invisible. So invisible enemies are always the preferred one, particularly if they scare people. If you can use fear 
and introduce significant fear, then people will need government to protect them from the invisible enemy. Then the second tactic, which is very effective, is divide and conquer. And so in the meantime, if you can use the media, the media plays a very important role. If you can turn men and women against each other and black and white against each other, one of the reasons you import a lot of immigrants into into Europe is turn the general population against the immigrants and then you need government to be in the middle and... You know, so, so these are all, whether it's divide and tactic or invisible enemies, these are all ways to institute fear and get people to go along with things. And, of course, the invisible virus allows you to do enormous control mechanisms. You can stop people from gathering. You can stop people from organizing. You can stop people from getting together and talking about what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And if you digitize it with contract tracing, then you can control who's talking to whom. If you can get them to do all their work and education online, you can literally listen to everything they're saying. So you can you can institute extraordinary amounts of surveillance all in the, you know, the theory that we're protecting you from the invisible virus. It's very clever, you know, and as you can see, it's working in with many people, not everybody, but many people. So to me... A lot, and, and I don't, I don't want to us, uh, underestimate the ability of the leadership to introduce pathogens that will kill people, and I don't want to suggest that people aren't getting sick. But um, essentially, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get people to buy into a solution before they see where it's ultimately going to go. Because you're talking about a transaction system that is no longer a currency, it's a control system. So it's like a credit at the company store. If every central bank comes out with a digital central bank currency, they have the ability to turn your money on and off. So if you don't behave, that's it. And of course, as we know, they want to combine this with transhumanism, which means literally, you know, I take injections that can institute an, the equivalent of an operating system in my body. And so I'm hooked up to the financial system literally physically. Just to the big- so I, she goes on and she actually is spot on in so many ways. And she's, uh, she's been ahead of the game for a long time. Uh, she worked, she worked in the first Bush administration as a HUD advisor. Uh, and then she set up a financial advisory committee. She actually was trying to bring transparency to transactions regarding housing and she was sabotaged in the 90s by uh, none other than Andrew Cuomo, who, who of course, we all have a um, feeling about in, in the current day, day and age. But uh, I, I'll stop it there. I could go on with her. But uh, she, you notice she talked about the, the, the credit and control system. The idea is to, obviously, they're modeling this off the, the Chinese uh, social credit system. And China also wants to become the new digital currency master. China is behind the vast majority of this. Whether they're, and that's the reason why they're becoming more militarily aggressive. They're an imperialist power. They want to take over. I mean, they've they've been saying this for years and years and years that uh, they control basically the entire South China Sea. They control all the water and landways. They've always been an aggressive population. And the CCP, because that's who's running it. I'm not saying that the the interior people, or let's just say, there's 90 million uh, uh, Communist Party members, and they're controlling the other 1.5 billion Chinese, at least 
That's the estimated population, if you can believe what comes out of China's mouth, which you really can't. But we know it's over a billion. We know it's probably over 1.4 billion. But essentially, uh, they have a huge party. And amongst those 90 million people that are, quote-unquote, members of the party, there's probably only about, you know, you say five or 10,000 that really matter in that particular. But they use they utilize the rest of the party members to uh, to do their bidding for them. They have their technocrats. And that's the reason why uh, I think part of the reason why our, our globalist, uh, American globalist and European globalists, we'll just, we'll just identify them like that, are uh, on board with all this because uh, they see that the, the Chinese have managed to institute this population control system and they they see it as a good way to to do what they want to do, which, you know, the World Economic Forum is klaus schwab and the transhumanism and he's been writing books on this stuff for quite a while um i think he publishes publishes back in the early two, 2010s um in 2016 he came out with the book on the fourth industrial revolution and then uh, in 2020 uh, in june they released the covid 19 the great reset um you can find these books you can read all about what he thinks should be done and it's all there's a there's elements of it's all elements of technocracy and uh, communistic control. Uh, I call it techno. I, I it's hard to there's a technocracy aspect to it, and Marxism isn't. I don't think the cleanest uh, uh, identification of it. It's more of like a feudalism, a feudalistic state, because. I see it as they're they're not really they don't care about the bourgeoisie or the proletariat. I mean, the the, the elite want to stay elite. That's it. There's no there there is no revolution uh, from the the proletariat. They're they're just getting us all to fight each other. That's what they want. They actually want population control. If Gates had his way, he'd like to see I don't know how many billions uh, uh, lost. Uh, when I say billions, I mean lives. I think he wants to become. He wants to be. Do, he wants to do everything that Mao Zedong, Hitler, and Stalin tried to do. Only amplify it by a magnitude of ten. That's that's truthful. I think that's truthfully where he's at in terms of his mentality. Um, and I may be even underestimating that, but uh, I would say at least uh, that's that's the path. That's the path. Of, that's the path ahead. Um, I hate to scare people with that idea, but I mean. The signs are pointing to it. The way they're t- they're they're censoring, they're otherizing. They want to put in this financial system. They want the Chinese Communist Party to be the uh, uh, modeled, and obviously they're they ramped up their their war aspirations. They have a stand, large standing army. They have a huge navy now, and they plan on using it. You don't build those stuff th- things unless you want to use them. There's a reason why the Germans did the same thing in the 1930s. It wasn't like Hitler went to war with nothing. Uh, they were building up for years, and so the, so as the Chinese. So all the Chinese are doing, they're, they're seeking revenge, or the CCP. Uh, they're seeking revenge for what they thought were was their century of humiliation. Uh, Xi Jinping is a pile of crap, but... Uh, and the thing is, he owns our president, because... All they have to do is release all the information of dealings, and I, I'm sure they had him. Uh, uh, Biden brags about how much, how many, how he has talked with uh, Xi Jinping more than any other, quote unquote, world leader. 
Well, what makes you think he didn't record everything he said? And Biden is a loose-lipped blabbermouth. If uh, he gets out of line, Xi would probably just release uh, the audio tapes of all they what they were discussing because I'm sure he was being... And I, I, I don't think Biden was coherent enough back then to even to uh, shut his mouth when he needed to. I've heard him on I've heard him on tape before. He's a loud mouth and he's an idiot. And now he's a now he's a demented idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. So and and I'm sure he's just enough aware of that fact that that's the reason why he's just being contorted. And now. Obama's in the background. There's lots of there's lots of players in this uh, scenario, lots of high level uh, puppets and puppeteers. Um, there's a lot of compromising uh, compromised people in this scenario. Uh, that's how how they roll. That's how these elites work. Uh, to be a part of the club, you have to be quote unquote tagged into the club, which means. In order for you to stay close to power, you have to be just as compromised as the next individual. That way, nobody. That way, people won't snitch. That's why. That's where they get that one-world mentality um, on board. So I'm going to end with uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, this is going to be a little bit shorter than what I originally had set out to do, but uh, <laughs> let's just say. Um, when you have to do something twice, it, it makes you more interested in uh, getting through the information and going from there. So Jordan Peterson is going to talk about uh, the, the Communist Manifesto as it was written and what he found were the errors in it. And I'll let him uh, talk about it for uh, it'll be about 15 or 20 minutes and then we'll wrap this up. Slightly, Slightly wiser, wiser, I presume. I presume. Than we were at one point, and so you can forgive the authors to some degree for what they didn't know, but that doesn't matter given that the essence of this doctrine is still held as sacrosanct by a large proportion of academics, probably um, are among the most, what would you call, guilty of that particular <laughs> sin. So here's proposition number one. History is to be viewed primarily as an economic class struggle. All right, so, so let's think about that for a minute. Um, first of all, is there the proposition there is that history is primarily to be viewed through an economic lens, and I think that's a debatable proposition because there are many other motivations that drive human beings than economics, and those have to be taken into account, especially that drive people other than economic competition like economic cooperation, for example. And so that's a problem. The other problem is that it's actually not a, nearly a pessimistic enough um, description of the actual problem because history, history, this is to give the devil his due. The idea that one of the driving forces between history is hierarchical struggle is absolutely true. But the idea that that's actually... History is not true because it's deeper than history. It's biology itself because organisms of all sorts organize themselves into hierarchies. And one of the problems with hierarchies is that they tend to arrange themselves into a winner-take-all situation. And so, and that, that is implicit in some sense in Marx, Marx's thinking because, of course, Marx believed that in a capitalist society, capital would accumulate in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And that actually is in keeping with the nature of hierarchical organizations. Now, the problem with that 
isn't so much the fact of the, so there's the there's accuracy in the accusation that that is a f- eternal form of motivation for struggle but it's an underestimation of the seriousness of the problem because it attributes it to the structure of human societies rather than the deeper reality of the existence of hierarchical structures per se which as they also characterize the animal kingdom to a large degree are clearly not only human constructions and the idea that there's hierarchical competition among human beings there's evidence for that that goes back at least to the Paleolithic times. And so that's the next problem. It's that, well, the, the, this ancient problem of hierarchical structure is clearly not attributable to capitalism because it existed long in human history before capitalism existed, and then it predated human history itself. So the question then arises, why would you necessarily, at least implicitly, link the class struggle with capitalism, given that it's a far deeper problem. And now, it's also, you've got to understand that this is a deeper problem for people on the left, not just for people on the right. It is the case that hierarchical structures dispossess those people who are at the bottom, those creatures who are at the bottom, speaking, say, of animals, but those people who are at the bottom, and that that is a fundamental existential problem. But the other thing that Marx didn't seem to take into account is that there, there, there are far more reasons that human beings struggle than their economic class struggle, even if you build the hierarchical idea into that, which is a more comprehensive way of thinking about it. Human beings struggle with themselves, with the malevolence that's inside themselves, with the evil that they're capable of doing, with the spiritual and psychological warfare that goes on within them. And we're also actually always at odds with nature and this never seems to show up in Marx and it doesn't show up in Marxists Marxism in general it's as if nature doesn't exist the primary conflict as far as I'm concerned or a primary conflict that human beings engage in is the struggle for life in a cruel and harsh natural world and it's as if It's as if that doesn't exist in the Marxist domain. If human beings have a problem, it's because there's a class struggle that's essentially economic. It's like, no, human beings have problems because we come into the life starving and lonesome. And we have to solve that problem continually. And we make our social arrangements, at least in part, to ameliorate that as well as to, to, well, upon occasion, exacerbate it. And so there's also very little understanding in the Communist Manifesto that any of the like, say, hierarchical organizations that human beings have put together might have a positive element. And that's an absolute catastrophe because hierarchical structures are actually necessary to solve complicated social problems. We have to organize ourselves in some manner. And you have to give the devil his due. And so it is the case that hierarchies dispossess people, and that's a big problem. That's the fundamental problem of inequality. But it's also the case that hierarchies happen to be a very efficient way of distributing resources. And it's finally the case that human hierarchies are not fundamentally predicated on power. And I would say the biological, anthropological data on that are crystal clear. You don't rise to a position of authority that's reliable in a human society primarily by exploiting other people. It's a very unstable means of obtaining power. So, so that's a problem. Well, the people that laugh might do it that way. Okay, now the other, another problem that comes up right away is that Marx also assumes that you can 
think about history as a binary class struggle with clear divisions between, say, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And that's actually a problem because it's not so easy to make a firm division between who's exploiter and who's um, exploitee, let's say, um, because it's not obvious, like in the case of small shareholders, let's say, whether or not they happen to be part of the oppressed or part of the oppressor. This actually turned out to be a big problem in the Russian Revolution. And by big problem, I mean tremendously big problem. Because it turned out that you could fragment people into multiple identities, and that, that's a fairly easy thing to do, and you could usually find some axis along which they were part of the oppressor class. It might have been a consequence of their education, or it might have been a consequence of their... Of, their, of, their, uh, of the wealth that they strived to accumulate during their life, or it might have been a consequence of the fact that they had parents or grandparents who were educated or rich, or that they were a member of the priesthood, or that they were socialists, or anyways, the, the listing of how it was possible for you to be bourgeois instead of proletariat grew immensely, and that was one of the reasons that the Red Terror claimed all the victims that it claimed. And so that was a huge problem. It was probably most exemplified by the de demolition of the Kulaks, who were basically peasants, peasant farmers, although effective ones in the Soviet Union, who had managed to raise themselves out of serfdom over a period of about 40 years and to gather some, some degree of material security about them. And about 1.8 million of them were exiled. Uh, about 400,000 were killed. And the net consequence of that... Um, removal of their private property because of their bourgeois status was arguably the death of six million Ukrainians in the famines of the 1930s. And so the binary class struggle idea, that was a bad idea. That was a very, very bad idea. It's also bad in this way, and, that, and this is a real sleight of hand that Marx pulls off, is you have a binary class division, proletariat and bourgeoisie, and you have an implicit idea that all of the good is on the side of the proletariat and all of the evil is on the side of the bourgeoisie. And that's classic group identity thinking. You know, it's one of the reasons I don't like identity politics is because once you divide people into groups and pit them against one another, it's very easy to assume that all the evil in the world can be attributed to one group, the hypothetical oppressors, and all the good to the other. And that... Well, and that's, 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 naive. that's naive beyond comprehension because um, it's absolutely foolish to make the presumption that you can identify someone's moral worth with their economic standing. So, and that actually turned out to be a real problem as well because um, Marx also came up with this idea, which is a crazy idea as far as I can tell, of the, that's a technical term, crazy idea, uh, of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's the next idea that I really stumbled across. It was like, okay, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is the capitalists own everything. They own all the means of production. And they're oppressing everyone. And that would be all the workers. And there's going to be a race to the bottom of wages for the workers as the capitalists strive to extract more and more um, value from the labor of the proletariat by competing with other capitalists to drive wages downward, which, by the way, didn't happen, partly because wages, wage earners can become scarce, and that actually drives the market value upward. But the fact that, that you assume a priori that all the evil can be attributed to the capitalists and all the good 
the, the bourgeoisie and all the good could be attributed to the proletariat meant that you could hypothesize that a dictatorship of the proletariat could come about and that was the the, the first stage in the communist revolution and remember this is a call for revolution and not just revolution but bloody violent revolution and the overthrow of all uh, the overthrowing of all existent social structures so um i can leave it i can go on this uh this is a long video and i left a link in the description but uh as you can see, there is a there is a interrupting audience. Uh, there's a certain groups that are all for a, a violent revolution. They're usually people that have never done any violence, and they think that uh, they think that such things are are somehow going to set things right or fair. Um, they they obviously have no concept of what's really going on because they really don't study history well enough to know that. The brutality that it goes on in a war or a revolution or whatnot, it, it, there there are no there are no clear there are no clear encampments in those situations. You don't know who your you don't know who your friends are. You don't know who your enemies are. It's why um, it's why actually why globalists can get away with the things that they do because most people don't want they want conflict. They these people it, 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 uh, rely on that fact. They rely on the fact that that they're, that, that most people are um, risk averse, uh, and you should. I mean, you only have one life. You only have one time frame to to make a difference on this earth. Uh, that's it. There's no there's no do overs, and so when you have young, impressionable, and rather stupid people, and I call them stupid because they're just. I don't know why why they would be clapping about revolution as if as if they don't realize how how lucky they have it. I mean, this uh, conference was in 2019, so they, they seem to ignore that in the last 200 years we've advanced as far, almost as far as I think humanity can advance without some regression to the mean, so to speak, um, which is part and parcel to probably why some of these globalists think that they they should be able to do what they're doing because they're 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 actually rather upset with uh the the fact that they're they're not uh, they're not substantially above us in station see certain people once they they get divorced from reality and they're at the top of their top of their profession or top of the the corporate ladder there's nowhere to go and and they need some as some would say they need an excitement. I don't know if they're sociopathic or psychopathic or uh, whatever drove them to get to where they are. Uh, the fact that they need to turn over the deck chairs for the rest of us in order for them to be pleased or entertained is 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 kind of a is kind of a hoot if you think about it because it really shows that no matter how much much acquisition you have and how much power you have in your position that. That there's a certain element of malevolence. It seems like they give over to the dark forces that in, that are in, in all of us. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I there aren't times when you don't want to, you know, wring someone's neck or whatever, and that you you should try to resist that force. And I've been punished for my uh, my uh, verbal outbursts in life substantially, far more than most people have, and so I have a certain amount of. Um, 
understanding of that that doesn't mean that I don't still get mad or upset and doesn't mean that I haven't told people to F off before in, in recent years. <laughs> and matter of fact, I have. But uh, there's, a, there's a limit. But the thing is, is the, the people that are so um, blessed... And many of these people that wind up at the top of this this uh, hierarchy that are currently trying to make sure that there is no there is no middle class and that there's just a bunch of serfs or feudalistic uh, you know they're trying to you know like I said install some kind of techno feudalism with a Chinese control system with a digital currency and a digital tracking mechanism placed inside of all of us so that they can have total control over the entire population of the earth. Um, one way or another see those that are resist will be rounded up that's 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 the goal and um, that's what that's what will happen because those that those that do not go along to get along will be first labeled and demonized there's a there's a step there's a step-by-step process you know they're otherizing people they're already uh trying to divide and conquer us and they're doing it through media manipulation and the media people will say, "Oh, I'm just following orders." They're not. They're, they use no critical thinking skills. They're not even. They don't even have enough um, moral integrity to just tell people like it is. See, at least I'm trying to tell you like it is. I'm not saying that I have all the answers because I don't. But I've just given you the perspectives of four very di- different uh, viewpoints. They, they they come from different walks of life. Um, two of them come from probably what I would call the elitists. Uh, viewpoint in terms of Naomi Wolf and jo- Jordan Peterson. They're well-known personalities. They're well-known people. They've been in the public eye for the last 25 to 30 years. Uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, she worked directly in government, uh, but she's a very uh, private, I would say, very, I would ostensibly say she's a private person who, who's been working uh, uh, to illuminate what goes on in the financial markets. Uh, her website is very uh, detailed. She writes a lot of reports. Uh, she uh, advises people. I don't know all of the business, but it, it looks like she's been doing this for quite some time, and she knows what she's talking about. And she can see the she sees the she sees the curves and the nuances that most of us don't. I I, I commend her because she knows far more than. And we're not talking about a slouch either. I think she I can't remember what her undergraduate and graduate degrees are in, but. Uh, she didn't get them from. She didn't get them out of a cardboard box or a Cracker Jack box. Uh, Sticks Hex and Hammer. Uh, he's probably the oddest ball of the bunch, but yet he's most probably the most. Uh, what would you say? Um, uh, connected to, uh, I guess you could say the tech world in terms of not tech tech world in terms of actually being a tech a tech a technocrat, but he's uh, been on the forefront of of new media and. Uh, seeing uh, trends, he's a he's basically a trend analyst and a political analyst, and I'm not saying he gets everything right, and I don't agree with everything he says, but that that doesn't matter. That's my that wasn't the whole point of uh, uh, introducing or putting his uh, viewpoint there. I just thought that was a good summary of what what's kind of going on, and and uh, the idea that uh, we should foster more of a the free market capitalism that the, this country was built, uh, the United States was built upon, not just this country, but the, basically the the Western world uh, had uh, developed over the last 200 years. 
And the fact is, is that of all the systems out there, um, most of what could be said is good. There's been a lot of good that's come out of innovation and, and uh, free marketing, allowing people to create their own uh, ingenuity. The problem is with globalists, they don't like that. They never have and they never will. They're, uh, they want to control everything. They don't. They they talk about how they're going to make things so much more efficient, but have they ever created anything that's f- efficient? Have they not just been exploitative of everything they ever touch? Uh, and then they create. You know, they use NGOs, they use political manipulation, they use media manipulation. They put pit people against each other. They're very. They're they're deceptively. They deceptively hide everything they're trying to do. Of course, there's some good that comes from. You know, when you throw hundreds of millions or billions of dollars at something yeah there's going to be people that are going to feel like they got something for their money uh there always is because you know if you work inside their their particular system i mean if you're a middle manager making two hundred fifty thousand dollars pushing paper and uh, writing white papers and telling people you know how they should live and what they should do and you're connected to the right political philosophies i mean yeah life's good for you but how many of those people actually exist how many people are they abusing to get to the, how many people get abused uh, in that particular system based upon uh, the handful of people that are pushing these narratives to you? Whereas uh, the average populist, the average local person who who uh, runs a runs a store, uh, uh, you know, say a grocery store, or runs a a small shop, or uh, does a, for example as a welder or auto mechanic or or whatever else uh, and they they have to buy their own tools they have to set up their own hours they have to manage employees no they're not managing a multinational corporation but they're not trying to they're trying to make a living most of it is uh it starts off most of those people start off as a hobbyist or enthusiast or they start off as an apprentice with some program they may uh, they start off in a garage working for their grandfather or, or a granddad or their mother. Um, I worked for my mother for a while. <laughs> she ran a small business. Uh, it should be it should be obvious to most people that uh, you should um, want to uh, you should want that kind of control. But the problem is with the globalists, and they're fearful of this. They don't want too many people to have control. And there's a lot of people that just aren't motivated to do very much in their life. They don't want to be told that, but that's the truth. Even the ones that are highly educated, I mean, look at the uh, professors and look at uh, academics. Yeah, they may have a, a high IQ and uh, they're great as long as they're working in a lab and they enjoy going, going to, they love going to their university job and doing the same thing they always do. Uh, they love the fact that government provides them with a, a soft cushion as long as they publish a paper every uh, once every 12 months or once every six months that uh, tries to delineate much of the same things that they've always delineated. You know, they may come up with one good idea per year and then usually that idea sucks uh, or it's bought. You know, guys like Bill Gates who goes to universities and buys up uh, medical professors or medical professionals, buys a virologist or an epidemiologist and and tells them, hey, if I give you this grant, will you uh, uh, publish this uh, viewpoint on this particular subject? And that person sells or sells out to sells their soul to the devil, or you know what have you. I mean, it doesn't really matter. 
I'm not trying to I'm not trying to demonize everybody that works in these professions, but it, it does seem to quite disconcerting when lawyers and judges and professors and teachers are all uh, are all very happy to do what they're doing as long as they're getting amply paid to do the same bullshit and push the same narratives that they uh, that are actually antithetical to not only this country, not only the United States and the Bill of Rights, but antithetical to uh, freedom and liberty. You know, it's nice for them to to squirrel away their particular uh, slice of uh, America Americana and then def- deny others of the same same rights. Uh, they do it either overtly or honestly, they do it subconsciously. They probably don't even think about it that much. Um, they, their, their level of introspection is weak if, at best. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, I've, uh, I've rambled on quite a bit. Um, I did trim about 25 minutes out of the, this, uh, this initial video, but I hope, uh, or video or audio, uh, this podcast, um, second time around, hopefully it turns out pretty well as far as the audio is concerned. Um, I think we're, we're heading towards a crisis this summer with, uh, the financial market, uh, the, the amount of money that is flowing through the system as, is meant to disrupt and uh, destroy it. We're going to face a Weimar Republic type of uh, situation right after World War One, where the Germans, uh, couldn't pay their debts. Uh, they, I think we're in the same kind of boat, and this is being done on purpose to us and by Joe Biden. He's going to become, he will become the worst president ever, ever listed in the United States by far. He won't even be a close second. I just, I'm throwing him under the bus because I don't see him as a leader. I see him as a puppet, and I hope uh, we can all survive through this. No matter what nation state you come from, no matter if you're from Hungary or or Nigeria or a host of other nations around the world, uh, we're all going to have to go through this. I hope that most people can keep their heads on straight and not riot, but very few people will listen to this broadcast and understand what I'm talking about. So I'm going to leave it there. God bless America. And God bless the entire world. We all have to fight uh, for our freedoms, our liberties, and maintain our uh, sense of self, our sense of worth. And I thank you and have a good remainder of your Sunday.